It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning. Welcome into the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here for the next two hours. And boy, is it good to be back. Right, just about a, a week and a half off since the last show. I apologize for the delay, or I guess not being here last week. It was a very, very hectic holiday week. Um, thankfully, a lot of fill-in shows on CBS Sports Radio, which really kind of clogged my schedule up and kind of made, uh, made at least doing both this show and those fill-in shows uh, a little too tough to do. Uh, both, obviously, also Thanksgiving was Thursday, so that's kind of the reason why there's no Thursday show. But we are back on a Monday. We hope you had a, a very fun, relaxing, exciting Thanksgiving holiday weekend. We wish you a belated happy Thanksgiving, and we welcome you for joining us here on this Monday mornings, we kind of get back into the work cycle, kind of get back into the flow of life. It's always tough. All right, trust me. The, the Monday after a holiday weekend is always the worst. So we're going to try to at least make the next two hours here a little bit more enjoyable, kind of ease your way and back into the work week a little bit easier. We are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, where it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Wow. Was there no shortage of news from this past weekend? My goodness gracious. A ton of college football to get into, both on the field, right? Michigan beating Ohio State, Oklahoma State taking out Oklahoma, Alabama surviving a scare against their arch rival in Auburn, but also a ton of off-the-field news, right? Bill, uh, of course, the big coaching news yesterday, Florida hiring Louisiana head coach Billy Napier. No, I'm just kidding. We will obviously dive right into the Lincoln-Riley to USC news in just a little bit, but also obviously a lot of NFL stuff to get to as well. Matthew Stafford and the Rams lose to the Packers. Baker Mayfield struggles and the Browns loss. We will dive into all of that as well. But obviously, we'll start, I think, with the biggest news of the weekend, the most impactful, surprising, shocking news, and that is Lincoln-Riley leaving Oklahoma, not for LSU, for USC. For me, the Trojans getting now Oklahoma's head coach or, or former head coach now, I think this is the best head coaching hire in college football since Nick Saban went to Alabama back in 2007. So basically, I think this is the best head coaching hire, the most impactful head coaching hire in college football in basically the last 15 years. Because this is the only hire since the Saban going to Bama um, was made in 07, this is the only hire since then that has had a massive impact, has had big ripple effects, not just for the school that hired Lincoln Riley, USC, not just for the school that Lincoln Riley is leaving, Oklahoma, but this is a massive hire. This is a massive news story for the conference, for the Pac-12. This one hire, this one hire, that's it, I think it makes the Pac-12 relevant again. Every single school... In the Pac-12, Cal, Stanford, Oregon State, Arizona State, you name it. Their stock has risen just a little bit more 
now with Lincoln Riley going to USC. And there's no other head coaching hire, there's no other move that could have made, I think, that USC could have hired to truly bring the perception back of the Pac-12 this quickly. Lincoln Riley, this is a huge power play move here. Just his presence, just him agreeing to go to the Trojans before we see even any results on the field has brought the conference back in a relevant way that I think no other hire would have done. So before we even dive into how Riley will do that, why don't we look at what made the Pac-12 irrelevant, right? How do you, as a Power 5 conference, this is not the AAC or the Mountain West, this is the Pac-12, one of the richest, you know, biggest conferences, obviously, in college football, part of the Power 5. How do you have one Power 5 conference become relevant? Well, as we know, because you don't have really any college football playoff appearances. You don't even have many teams in the college football playoff picture for most of the year. Because right? now, as we know, with the playoff instituted since 2014, what do we care about? We basically care about the top four teams and who could be around the top four teams, who can make a run to the playoff. And really, once you're out of the playoff conversation, once you have two losses and your season's over, we stop paying attention for the most part, naturally. We stop caring about two loss, let's say, Penn State, when they had two losses in a row, or Auburn, or even Oregon. Right? As soon as really a conference or a team is out of the picture, we stop paying attention. Really, Clemson maybe is the best example of that. As soon as they lost to NC State and we kind of saw their season blow up in flames, what was that, week two, week three? That was it. They're out. They're gone. See you later. We stop focusing. We stop caring. So now if you're the Pac-12 as a conference, when you routinely don't even have teams in the discussion, we tend to forget about you. And that's what the Pac-12 has done. They've routinely struggled to even have teams in the picture. They've only had two teams make it. That the first year, Oregon made it, where they made it to the national title game, losing to Ohio State. And the, other, all the, the only other year they've had a team in was 2016 in Washington. USC has never made it. Oregon's made it just once. And like we just said, Washington is the only other team to make the playoff. Not since 2016 has the Pac-12 had a team in the college football playoff. So even though, to give the Pac-12 credit, they've had one of the most competitive conferences, top to bottom. Right, we see conferences like the SEC, who are very top heavy. We have teams at the bottom like Vanderbilt, like Missouri, who this year has obviously gotten a little better. For the most part, Arkansas has been on the bottom, right? There are a lot, for the most part, of conferences that are very top-heavy. Big Ten, where they have some bottom feeders like Rutgers every single year, kind of just scraping by, just being really bad. The Pac-12 doesn't have that. The gap between 1 and 12, first and last, is not as far as it is in the rest of the conferences. They are competitive. They are a league where truly any team can win on any Saturday. So from a competition perspective, it's good, but from a college football playoff perspective, from getting one or two teams to dominate the conference, be better than everyone else, and be in that elite conversation with the rest of the, you know, the top teams in other uh, conferences, the Pac-12 has fallen short of that every single season. And really, just go, you know, forget just the playoff era. They really haven't had that since, really, early 2000s USC. Because as soon as they fell off, no one has really kind of stepped up. Now, when you look at the, the other Power 5 conferences, there's been one team that has consistently led the way. 
The SEC has been Alabama, right? Since Nick Saban has come there the last 15 or so years, they have dominated that conference. They have been the team to beat every single year in the SEC. The Big Ten, Ohio State. ACC has been Clemson, and the Big 12 has been Oklahoma. All four of those conferences have one team that has separated themselves from the rest, that have been identified as always the team to beat every single year, the team that has the best shot of making the playoff from that respective conference. If you're the Pac-12, you don't have a team. You can't point to a team consistently and say, that's a team to beat. Sure, Oregon has had moments, right? They have had times, and in the Chip Kelly era especially, they have dominated that conference, but it was for a short time. They haven't had sustainability, right? Mark Helfrich couldn't keep it up, even though he led them to a college football uh, playoff national title game with Marcus Mariota. They couldn't keep it up, and once he left, the Oregon program kind of tailed off. Mario Cristobal has brought the recruiting back, but as we've seen, haven't, you know, even though they won a few Pac-12 titles, haven't really been uh, in the college football playoff conversation. This was their best season after beating Ohio State. And as we know, once they got dominated by Utah, there goes their chances. There goes the Pac-12 chances. So really, no team has consistently in the national level been the team to be, been one of the dominant teams in the conference since early 2000s USC. And I do think now Lincoln Riley going over to Southern Cal becoming the head coach of the Trojans, changes that. I think now USC is going to develop back into the early 2000s USC with Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and all of those tremendous players that have just gone in the NFL year after year after year. But they were a factory. They were a juggernaut. And I think now Lincoln Riley is the coach, brings the cachet, the swagger that is needed to bring USC back. It's not going to happen overnight. Now, he's not going to go there next year and turn this bad roster into a 10-2 and two kind of team and a college role playoff contender. The roster needs a lot of work. So it's going to take a little bit of time. But two years, three years, I do think now Lincoln Riley will turn this program around. Because look, in his short time as head coach, he has proven to win, and not just win, win at a high level. I get he took over a, a nice, cushy job when Bob Soups retired and he took over Oklahoma. And really, didn't have to really build it up. But he was able to sustain and take Oklahoma to a, a very high level. Like he, I would say, elevated the program when he took over Bob's, for Bob Stoops. That's really tough to do. Right? He was 55-10. and 55-10. and 10. And his four seasons at Oklahoma made the playoff three out of the four years. Now, I guess really technically three out of five. But he has done a tremendous job so far at taking Oklahoma, taking the sustainability Bob Stoops has brought to the program, and again, elevated to three college football playoff appearances in his last five years. And you you look and you think of now what he has to work with at Southern Cal. Going to a conference where, again, now if you're at Oklahoma and you stay there, or you go to LSU, which was obviously a, a school that was very motivated to bring Lincoln Riley in, you now have a tougher time winning in the SEC. There's more dominant programs. We see with Alabama. We see Georgia on the rise. It is very competitive, not just on the field, but recruiting-wise. Lincoln Riley now going to USC, going to a conference that has kind of always fumbled over itself and no team was able to separate from the rest. You now are able to recruit with the best of them. You now also, by the way, go to a school with an insanely fertile recruiting ground. But there's an insane amount of talent in Southern California. The issue is for USC, a lot of them have been leaving. Now look at some of the best quarterbacks in college football this year. Bryce Young in Alabama. 
DJ Uwe Ungalale at Clemson, although he's had a struggling year, but very highly rated prospect. Matt Corral at Ole Miss. CJ Stroud at Ohio State. You know what all four of those quarterbacks have in common? They are from the Southern California area, and all four left. All four went elsewhere. That's the talent that's in Lincoln Riley's backyard now that I do think he's going to get to stay. I mean, if you're a Southern California prospect, why wouldn't you now want to play for USC? It, it made sense for you to go elsewhere, whether it was Oregon, whether it was Clemson, Alabama, Ole Miss, uh, Georgia, Ohio State. It made a lot of sense for you to leave and go elsewhere because USC was a mess. They weren't churning out the pros. They weren't developing the talent that was in their own backyard. So if you wanted to go to the NFL, win a national title, win the Heisman Trophy, put up a ton of yards, you're not going to USC. You couldn't trust them to get the most out of the roster, get the most out of your talent, and take you to that next level because they haven't shown it the last few years. Other coaches and schools have. But now you have Lincoln Riley coming to town who coached two Heisman winners in Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray who had Jalen Hurts, right, turned him into a grad transfer, into a Heisman uh, Trophy runner-up, took him to the playoff. Two of those quarterbacks, first overall picks, Hurts being a second-round quarterback uh, as well. So you have Lincoln Riley now coming over with a ton of success, with a, you know, a, a great recruiting prowess, taking over a USC program that really, when USC is back, so is the Pac-12. This is the most impactful hire we have seen in 15 years. Since Nick Saban went to Alabama and the Crimson Tide hired away the former NFL coach, former national champion of LSU. This is the most impactful hire we have seen in the last 15 years because it's not only just about USC, it's about the Pac-12. Their relevance is high again when USC is good. USC being good is just like Alabama being good in the SEC or Ohio State being good in the Big 12, uh, the Big Ten, or Oklahoma being good in the Big 12. It raises the tide of the rest of the teams. And I think that is why this move is so impactful. This is a huge, huge, huge move. This is the best head coaching hire anyone in the cycle is going to make. I know LSU still has to find a head coach. I don't think they're going to top uh, bringing in Lincoln Riley. And this is the most impactful and biggest hire we have seen in college football in 15 years. So I'm curious your thoughts here, whether it's on Facebook, Worldwide Sports or Network, Twitter. WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey show on Twitter as well. Can Lincoln Riley have success at USC? Did he make the right move? Leaving Oklahoma, where again, he's had success. He's had a pipeline to the playoff. Now going to the SEC in a few years. Did he make the right move in going from Oklahoma to USC? Or do you think he made a mistake? And is this the biggest hire we've seen in college football in 15 years? Has there been a bigger hire? Jimbo Fisher left Florida State where, where he won a national title, right, to go to Texas A&M. Is there a bigger hire in college football in the last 15 years than Lincoln Riley going to USC? Love to hear your thoughts again. Facebook, comment right there, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your Lincoln Riley to USC thoughts. And when we do return here, I do want to hit on two quarterbacks in the NFL. Baker Mayfield, Matthew Stafford. Both struggled yesterday. I thought both had a ton of pressure on them to win. Both came up short. Are you believing in either of these quarterbacks to kind of turn their teams around and reach their expectations? We'll discuss those thoughts when we do return here. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show.
right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here. We're also on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We'll get to some Week 12 um, games and reactions here in a second. We are Chad Lincoln Riley and his decision to go from Oklahoma to USC. For me, the biggest coaching decision, the biggest coaching impact, the biggest coaching hire in 15 years. This is the biggest coaching move since Nick Saban went uh, from the Dolphins to Alabama in 2007. That's how much I think is going to shake up college football, not just because he's living a premier program in Oklahoma, not just because for USC this is the biggest, and I'm not getting the biggest hire they could have made of any head coach they would have picked. This also goes far beyond just USC. This is a huge impact for the Pac-12. This makes them relevant again. Just him choosing a Pac-12 team over an SEC team shows you the Pac-12 is back. This conference is back to being relevant. They'll get some national respect again. And I do think this is great, not just for USC, but for the conference itself, because they have been kind of a forgotten conference since they were routinely kind of uh, been left out of the cultural playoff. And really since USC's dominant era has fallen out in the mid-2000s, right, 06, 07, and they've kind of struggled and stumbled over each other. They had sanctions to deal with when Pete Carroll left. Obviously, the talent they have brought in has not been the same. You know, when Matt Leinert was there and Reggie Bush was there and Lenda White and Troy Palmolo and Brian Cushing and all those tremendous, talented players they had on both sides of the football. This is the first time since then where the Pact of, I think, is back to being truly relevant yet again. And I do want to hit on one ironic party before talking about Matthew Stafford and, ba- uh, and Baker Mayfield. <laughs> And that is it. I'm sure if you've been on Twitter the last 24 hours, you have seen it as well. But it looks like late last night, a Oklahoma, I'm assuming student, but someone within you know the Oklahoma community, where there's an entrance to the University of Oklahoma sign, you know, one of those big signs right on the edge of campus, welcome to the University of Oklahoma. Someone hung a traitor sign there. Obviously upset Lincoln Riley has left the school to go to USC. The ironic part about that, to me at least, is that I truly do think if Oklahoma was staying in the Big 12, if they weren't going from the Big 12 to the SEC, I don't think Lincoln Riley's leaving. I think he's staying put because I think right there he has a really good job. He still can recruit at a national level. I think he would win a national title in the Big 12. I don't think now he would have left Oklahoma for USC. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's leaving no matter what. I do think, though, the move from the Big 12 to the SEC kind of now drove Lincoln Riley away, where if you look around, right, you are now going to a conference that is deeper, that is tougher, that is more competitive in every aspect. On the field, obviously playing, right? Off the field when it comes to recruiting. It's going to be a lot tougher job being in coaching in the SEC than it is in the Big 12, right? It's just common sense. So if you're Lincoln Riley, I think you'll realize, okay, I can either coach at Oklahoma, maybe go to LSU, but either way still, you know, our coaching program are week in and week out, year in and year out. It is really tough to not only win, but sustainably win, right? Lincoln Riley's 55 and 10. I'm going to go on a limb, even though I think he would have success, and I do think he'd win a national title at Oklahoma in the SEC. With that said, though, he's not going 55 and 10 with Oklahoma in the SEC. You're going to have some down years. You're going to have some seasons that have two and three losses where really, for the most part, he hasn't really had to deal with that. This year is an exception. Last year is an exception. But before that, really, he has had 
you know, basically one loss every single year. He has cruised through the Big 12 and is dominating that conference. He's not dominating the SEC. That's Alabama's conference. We've seen now Georgia up on the rise. LSU to pay on who they bring in. Maybe they could turn around. Ole Miss is a program on the rise. Arkansas, a doormat for years with Sam Pittman, now has come in and turned this program around and made them competitive. So even the bottom feeders of the SEC are going to be tough. So it's ironic to me that Oklahoma fans feel betrayed by Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma for USC when in, in the real fact, I think Oklahoma did it to themselves. They played themselves. Going from the Big 12 to the SEC, going for the money grab, I think truly did cost them their head coach. I think Lincoln Riley is the head coach of Oklahoma if they're still in the Big 12, not moving to the SEC. That was just fun. But love to get your thoughts. How big of a move is this? Is the Pac-12 in your mind relevant again? Is USC and the Pac-12 getting picked, you know, for Lincoln Riley, where he could have had his choice of any job if he truly wanted to leave Oklahoma? Right? He could have, you know, he could have walked to LSU and they would have given him a blank check and said, thank you very much. He could have gone to LSU. I'm sure Florida would have been interested. He could have stayed at Oklahoma. He instead chose to go to USC and the Pac-12. For me, that's the biggest move in 15 years. Is the Pac-12 back in your mind? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. At Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll circle back to that here in a little bit. I do want to hit on both Baker Mayfield and Matthew Stafford and their struggles yesterday. Just me going into week number 12. This is a big week for, you know, where there's a lot of marquee games on Sunday. I thought of any quarterbacks this past week. The two with the most pressure on them were Baker and Stafford. And I thought both were disappointing in their respective losses. Coming out of those losses, now moving forward here with about six games to go. I'll be honest. I'm concerned. I'm more concerned, though, about Baker and his ability to leave the Browns to the playoffs than I am about Matthew Stafford and his ability to lead the Rams to the Super Bowl. So I'm still believing in, Baker May- uh, in Matthew Stafford more than I am for Baker Mayfield. Because for Baker, you look at how he played yesterday. My goodness. That is, that is really not a good sign. But he struggled against a Raven secondary. That's gettable. That is not very good. This is the second worst secondary right, in terms of pass defense in all the NFL. They have gotten exposed through the air every single game they played this year. They're not a very good secondary. They have great players like Marlon Humphrey. He's a really stud corner. But collectively as a team, they're the second worst pass defense in the NFL. Yet Baker struggled. That's concerning. And the biggest concern, for me at least this year, is that the injuries are really taking a toll. It's getting to the point now where the Browns might not have an option but to shut him down. Put him on IR, have him get surgery, and basically punt on 2021 and kind of, you know, hope he's healthy for 2022 and see what you can do there in a big-time decision-making year for Baker's future. Because you look at what happened yesterday. Again, this is a really bad – I don't know why I'm saying yesterday weird, by the way. Yesterday. Sorry, that was something I just picked up all of a sudden. I don't, don't know where they – yesterday – Started coming in yesterday. Baker was super inefficient. He struggled again against one of the worst pass defenses in all the NFL. He was 18 and 37 yesterday, sub 50% completion percentage. Now threw for 247, one touchdown, no picks. But there were many, many missed opportunities in the game yesterday. You look at what just happened, right? Baker, uh, not Baker, Lamar on the other side. He really struggled. He threw four interceptions, four picks. The concerning part, though, is that the Browns turned those four picks 
into just three points. You can't win games when the other quarterback has given you four opportunities and you only cash in with one field goal. You had every opportunity to convert, take that game by the horns, win that game on the road on Sunday night, and the Browns gave it away. And to me, that's on Baker Mayfield. That's on your quarterback, especially in a game where I get you're a run-first team, your identity is through running the ball, and I get you lost Jack Conklin early, which unfortunately now looks like he's probably lost for the year with that just gruesome knee injury. But you're a run-first team. You got Kareem Hunt back. Nick Chubb is back healthy in the lineup for the last few games. That is a game where even if the run game is struggling, you need your quarterback against one of the worst pass defenses in the NFL to step up. And he couldn't do so. He struggled. And I think a lot of those struggles have to do with injuries. So now you lose a game. You drop to 6-6. Six and six, That we're sure you're still right in the midst of the playoff hunt. And as you know, the AFC, you know, every team has had their ups and their downs. Ebbs and flows. No team has really been able to run away with it. There's the, the wild card is still wide open more than ever. But if you're the Browns, I don't see how you can watch that game last night and feel great and believe that Baker Mayfield can be your quarterback this season to lead you to the playoffs. I'm still a Baker believer. I absolutely bring him back next year, and I think there's still an, a, a real shot and a legitimate shot. He'll be the quarterback of the Browns for 2022 and beyond. The problem, though, is that injuries have really taken their toll to where they, his effectiveness has been limited. But you look at the Browns' offense. They have now scored with their 10 points yesterday. They have now scored 17 points or less in five out of the last six games. The one game was that explosion against the Bengals for 41 points. Well, that's looking more and more like an anomaly. That's looking more and more like just everything was going right, everything for the Bengals is going wrong, and you have one of those games where it all clicked at the right time. But 17 points now in five of your last six games is not getting you anywhere closer to the playoffs. And if Bakers are scoring 17 points a game, I mean, I'm sure Case Keenum can do the same. Like, you're going to miss the playoffs if you're Cleveland if this trend on offense continues. Your defense is doing the job. They did a hell of a job. They forced four, pay, uh, four turnovers from Laura Jackson. Contained as well as you could. Only allowed 16 points. Kept you in the game. You need your offense to convert on these opportunities, and they couldn't. And I think a large reason, again, Baker Mayfield dealing with an ankle injury and a knee injury. And we know, obviously, the shoulder injury has given him a lot of trouble on the left side. He can be healthy. He can try to play through it. But right now, his effectiveness is severely limited. His accuracy has waned. His mobility is really not there. His ability to throw on the run has uh, gone down. He has struggled to the point where... Excuse me. Ooh, sorry about that. He has struggled to the point where I don't think the Browns are left with a choice. I think shutting him down, riding now with Case Keenum, having Baker get surgery and clean up all the injuries he has, and you hope for a clean and speedy return for 2022, is the only option they're going to have. I'd give Baker one more game, one more shot here to try to prove you're on coming out of the bye, right? They have the bye, then they play the Ravens again. You get another 17-point effort against Baltimore, I think it's time to pull the plug in. you got to really determine Baker Mayfield's future and worry about 2022 more than 2021. So I am severely concerned about Baker's ability to lead the Browns to the playoffs. A lot of the injury-related. On the flip side, 
I get there's another poor game. Three games in a row for Matthew Stafford in this Rams offense. I do believe he is the quarterback to lead the Rams deep into the playoffs. Like I will say, this three-game losing streak isn't all on Matthew Stafford. The biggest issue for the Browns, the biggest uh, for, the, uh, for the Rams, the, and the biggest concern is that they're not playing like a team. Right? They have, and we can go through the roster, right? They have a ton of individual talents. They have Matthew Stafford. They have a great O-line. They have Cooper Cup. They recently signed Odell Beckham Jr. You have Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald, and they brought in Von Miller. There's a lot of talent on this team, 1 through 53. There's a lot of names. But right now, they have not played like a team. They're playing 53 individuals instead of one team. They need more cohesion. The reason why I will say I'm still not jumping off the Rams bandwagon it's because we saw this exact situation play out one year ago. Right, look at the Buccaneers. Same thing. They had a lot of big-time names. They brought in a lot of talent on their team. Through 12 weeks, they looked out of whack and out of sync. They were a team that struggled playing on the same page. Tom Brady did not look like, excuse me, a very good quarterback. The defense was leaky. The offense wasn't really on the same page for a while. And then after the bye week, after week 13, which they lost to the Chiefs at home but the game before, they figured out the last four games. So I do think now with six games left, the Rams are still able and have time to figure it out. But right now, everything is not working for them. They need to kind of fix things and fix them quick. Offensively, they're really struggling to play as an efficient unit. Right, Matthew Stafford has not looked comfortable in the pocket the last three games. I don't know whether it's the defenses are throwing him new looks he's not ready for. He doesn't trust his offensive line. The run game has been non-existent. Right? They have been held to under 100 yards in four of the last five games. So now if you're putting the game more and more in Matthew Stafford's hands, and defenses know that, I wonder now if he's starting to feel the pressure. Another pick six from Matthew Stafford yesterday. Three games in a row now where he's thrown a pick six. Fumble led to a touchdown. You know, he was strip-sacked. That fumble led to a big-time touchdown for Green Bay. This offense has really struggled getting in gear getting going the last three weeks. Defensively, I think they've been a letdown, to say the least, right? They were gashed two weeks ago by the 49ers on the ground. Rodgers just dissected them yesterday. This is a team that can get after the quarterback in a very uh, effective way. They only got one sack on Aaron Rodgers. Barely felt like he even got any pressure on him. He was sitting back there in the pocket, even with a busted toe, all game long, picking apart that defense. So even though, like I said, the offense isn't really playing well, the defense is struggling, everything kind of seems out of like Even Sean McVay struggling with time management, with clock management, with figuring out, you know, how to, how to effectively kind of score the most points in the least amount of time. We saw that kind of in the fourth quarter really have some head-scratching moves. I do trust Matthew Stafford and the Rams are going to figure it out. It's a rough patch right now, absolutely. But I have faith that talent there will eventually work itself out so they will play as a unit together. So I'm a, I'm a bigger believer in Matthew Stafford and the Rams being closer to the Super Bowl than in Baker and the Browns being closer to the playoffs. I thought both of those quarterbacks had a ton of pressure on them yesterday. I thought both were disappointing in their effective losses. And now coming out of that moving forward, I'm definitely more concerned about Baker and his ability to lead the Browns to the playoffs than I am about Matthew Stafford's ability to lead the Rams to the Super Bowl. So I'm curious your thoughts here. What's your belief level in Matthew Stafford? Are you totally out on them and think the Rams are done? Baker Mayfield. Can Baker turn it around in your mind or the Browns cook? Should they go to Case Keenum? Should they honestly shut down Baker Mayfield and start focusing on 2022 and hope that Case Keenum can give you a spark for the last six games? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, 
WWSRN underscore radio at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts. We do return here. A lot of other action we got to get to in week number 12 of the NFL. We will do so in NFL Quick Hits next. Just listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. 15 minutes from now, two teams with a very impressive performance yesterday, two teams that had a major opportunity, a big-time statement opportunity slipped through their fingers. They lost a very disappointing game that I thought they had no business losing. We'll get to that again 15 minutes from now. Before that, a lot of other action to dive into here from week number 12 in the NFL. Let's start with the Dolphins, right? This game was, I thought, very interesting. Dolphins, Panthers, not a ton on the line, right? The Panthers are more of a team in the playoff mix than Miami is. Coming into this game, I want to ask you this question. What more does Tua Tungvaloa have to show? What more does he have to prove? He has showed you the last month to six weeks. He is the quarterback for the Dolphins. He absolutely better be the quarterback for the Dolphins in 2022 moving forward. He has played really well. He is a good quarterback, and I don't understand this narrative that has started really right from the jump about Tua not being the guy the Dolphins needing to move on from. It has started almost from jump street. And now that Tua is playing well, it's like no one wants to admit it or recognize it or give him credit for it. This is yesterday. Again, he's not playing Joe Schmo defense. He was going up against Carolina Panthers defense yesterday. That is number one in pass defense. Number two in total defense. He went 27 to 31, 230 yards, one touchdown. He had four incompletions, zero interceptions against the number one pass defense in the NFL. That 27 to 31, over 80% completion percentage. He has now had, uh, you know, he has now completed, I should say, 80% of his passes in the last two games. Yesterday and the week before. Just four quarterbacks have done that since 1950. Two consecutive games with 80% or higher completion percentage. Don't look now. He is the second highest completion percentage of any quarterback in the NFL this year. Only Kyler Murray has completed a higher percentage of his passes than Tua Tungavailoa. Tua is sitting there at 70.5% completion percentage. He's making good decisions. He's getting the ball out of his hand and getting the ball in space. Yesterday was also, I thought, monumental because now that marked the 16th start of Tua Tungvaloa's career. Obviously, that equals a full season. So if we look at now, the last 16 games, the last full season, Tua has started games. He has a 67 com uh, uh, completion percentage. He's thrown for 3,500 yards, 27 total touchdowns, 11 picks, 90.5 passer rating. 67% completion percentage, 3,500 yards, 27 total touchdowns, 11 picks. Why are the Dolphins so fast on moving on from him? Tua can play. Tua can absolutely play. And by the way, he's doing so. He's playing well behind one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL, 
the worst rushing attack in the NFL, and skill players that I think are, are okay when healthy, but not very good. Right? Jalen Waddle's a nice addition and a really good pick. Devontae Parker, you know, is a great receiver when healthy. Can't be relied upon. Will Fuller, deep threat. Brings, you know, a different dynamic to this offense when healthy. Has been healthy. So you are looking at a roster and a team that is not very good around him on offense. And Tua is still having success. So imagine if you build an offensive line, if you get it right, will you give Tua some time to throw? Will you give him maybe a weapon or two that actually can stay healthy and change the game? How much better he will get. Tua is good. Miami's got to stop looking around, stop flirting with other options. He is your quarterback. Yesterday, I thought, was just the latest example of proving that fact. How about the 49ers? Here they come. The 49ers are making the playoffs. I know we've kind of written them off and, and really kind of threw them away after their tough start to the season. They're peaking at the right time. And in the NFC, they're out of the top five teams, right? The, 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 the line of demarcation. Cowboys, Packers, Rams, um, Buccaneers, and Cardinals. Out of those five teams... The rest, the last two playoff spots are wide open. No team is very good. But the 49ers now are that team. They're 6-5. and five. They're the only other team outside of those top five that's over 500 in the NFC right now. And they got, I thought, a massive, massive win over the Vikings to grab onto that sixth seed right now, 34-26. And again, now they're 6-5 and five in the season. They have the sixth seed in, in the NFC. I think they're going to keep it. Kyle Shannon has turned this team around very, very quickly. Right? They are finally now clicking an offense. As you know, right? they are a run-heavy, run-first kind of team. Well, now that their running backs are healthy, now their O-line is getting healthier and getting you know cohesion together, this offense is coming around big time. Yesterday against Minnesota, ran for 280 yards, three touchdowns on the ground. Last week versus the Jags. I get it's the Jaguars, but this is a defense that has given other teams fits recently. The Bills, the Colts. 49ers ran for 171 yards, put up 30 points on Jackson on the Jacksonville. They ran for 156 yards against the Rams uh, Monday night a few weeks ago. The running game is now the key to success in San Fran. In the last three games especially, the running game has come alive. And no coincidence, there are three in the last three games and the running game has taken off. This is now a team that's going to be dangerous. The talent was there on paper for San Fran. And now we are seeing it come to fruition where they are really starting to round into form or racing a slow start, and they are going to make the playoffs. Yes, there's a late example of that. Yesterday, I guess the Vikings, who have, I think at points played better than you hope and at other times are really kind of had, leaving you with your head scratched, like what the hell's going on here? Minnesota's a very up-and-down team this year. But that's a big-time win when you're going against an opponent on a similar level than you that's going to have massive playoff implications going forward. Like that's a huge tie-breaking win. Well, as long as San Fran doesn't kind of just kind of go back into a shell like they did it earlier in the year, that's going to be the difference between having the sixth seed or the seventh seed. Difference between making the playoffs and missing the playoffs. So the 49ers are getting healthier. Their run game is starting to flourish, and they are right now peaking at the right time. Yes, yesterday, the latest win. And it shows you, this is absolutely a playoff team. So you go from a team that we start to know, we, we start to finally see their identity flourish. Let's go from that team to San Fran, 
to a team I have no clue who the hell they are in the Chargers. I mean, my goodness. This team, there is no Jekyll and Hyde team more in the NFL than the Chargers. This team has continued to confuse all season long, and yesterday they did so yet again with just a demoralizing, flat game against the Broncos. And you come off of a very emotionally high win over the Steelers, which had a big-time lead. You blew it. You eventually had Justin Herbert lead your team back, which is over two minutes left right to score that big touchdown by Williams. And then you go out there and lay an egg offensively against Denver. I get Denver as a great defense, right? They still have a lot of good players, especially in the secondary. But, I mean, what are we doing here? You cannot lose that game, especially when you look at Teddy Bridgewater, who's basically playing on one leg, you know, hobbling around, still was able to do enough to lead Denver to victory. Look, I like their talent that the Chargers have on paper, right? One through 53, you look at the names on this Chargers team. It's impressive on both sides of the ball. I can't trust them. No one should trust them. And honestly, no one should feel good about this team. Justin Herbert's been one of, you know, right? One of the best young quarterbacks we have seen in recent time. Brandon Steele, I think, is a good young head coach where a lot of people are praising for his aggressiveness, for his perspective on the game. But even though there are some bright spots and some good young points on this team, this Chargers team week to week, you never know what you're going to get. They are the epitome of Forrest Gump's, you know, you never know what you're going to get. Life's like a box of chocolates. In real life, that's who the Chargers are. They are a box of chocolates. Each week, you have no clue whether they're going to beat the hell out of the Chargers, uh, beat the hell out of the Chiefs, win a thriller against the Browns, or they're going to lay an egg like they did to the Vikings, or they're going to get blown out like they did to the Ravens. This team, week to week, there's no team that has higher highs and lower lows than the loss and just charging. We just talked about the Minnesota Vikings, by the way. Who? So, the wild stat. Only one team in the NFL has had a seven-point lead in every single game they've played this season. That is the Minnesota Vikings. So, we just talked about a, a team that's hot and cold, that is mercurial in Minnesota. And LA said, hold my beer. I'll, I'll one-up you. And I think that's what, what they've done so far this season. They, my goodness are very inconsistent. I do think there's a reason for it, though, I will say. I think what we're seeing with the Chargers is similar to what we're seeing with the Chiefs. To where you look at the defense of L.A., they really can't stop anyone, especially in the, in the run game to save their life. They have one of the worst run defenses in the NFL. They're getting shredded on the ground. That inability to stop the run, that allows other teams now to control and dictate the pace and the flow of the game. So now instead of Justin Herbert kind of you know, and his offense dominating the game and running it their way, you know, have them trying to play catch up because for the most part, in most of these games, the other team's having a lot of success on the, round, uh, on the ground. They're controlling the ball. They're controlling the line of scrimmage. They're controlling the clock and thus controlling the flow of the game. So now you're putting extra pressure on the offense because now if you're Justin Herbert in this offense, even though there's a lot of good players in Austin Eckler and Keenan Allen and Mike Williams, you feel now the pressure to go out and score every single time you're on the field, similar to how Patrick Mahomes fell with the Chiefs, right? Remember, he was he admitted. He was pressing. So I think that pressure now that Mahomes and the Chiefs offense felt when their defense was giving up points left and right, I think that is what the Chargers are feeling now as well. Their defense can't get a stop, especially in the run game. And that just puts extra emphasis on the offense every time they're out there to make the most of it. And when now they're trying almost too much at points, they're too sloppy, and that is leading to some turnovers, 
some lack of execution and losses that really have you leaving, you know, leaving you with your head scratched, leaving you confused. That is, for me at least, what I think is going on with the Chargers. And finally here, I think the Tennessee Titans kind of showed you yesterday, kind of put, I'll say a nail in the coffin of anyone who maybe was holding out a hope that Tennessee could be still a threat in the AFC. Because no team right now should fear Tennessee. The Patriots, and I, and I know they're right now the Patriots are a hot team. And I get the Titans were not only missing Derek Henry, but also Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. Yesterday was one of the least surprising games for me. Yesterday, I felt really confident, not only the Patriots winning, them dominating Tennessee. And that's what we saw in basically a 20-point victory. So you look at Tennessee now. Their offense leaves you no reason to be nervous no matter who you are. So I get, look, and I like I just said, I get there missing their top two wide receivers on top of Derrick Henry. But Ryan Tannehill has showed you week in, week out now, he is not the guy that could take the offense, put it on his shoulders, and lead it to victory. He is reliant on Derrick Henry having a really good game. Just the threat of Derrick Henry being on the field, and that's how he makes plays with his legs, makes plays with his arm. Without that threat there, he cannot throw you to a victory. Yes, there's the latest example of that. 93 passing yards, just 11 completions. Again, I get you're, you know, banged up with injuries. But even still, the injuries at one point, you know, can only go so far as an excuse. This Tennessee offense, since Derrick Henry went out of the lineup, has not been good. I get they're 2-2 two two in the four games since Derrick Henry has gone out. But this offense in all four games has been brutal. They're averaging just 19.3 points per game. And that, honestly, that is including... The pick six that they scored on defense and the other interception by Matthew Stafford against the Rams that put them first and goal. So we're being generous in giving the Titans even more points on their offense even scored and they're still, you know, struggling big time. This is not an offense that's going to put up any sort of big time threat without Derrick Henry. And this is not a defense that will consistently be able to stop you because now every single, you know, play on defense for them is a lot of pressure. Similar to the Chargers for an extra pressure on offense to score because their defense can't get a stop. And now Tennessee's defense is feeling the extra pressure because they realize this offense is not going to score as many points. We got to get a stop on every single drive because I can't trust Ryan Tannehill to put up 20, 25, 30 points a game. He's not going to do it by himself. He's incapable of doing so. That's why I think yesterday was one of the least shocking results possible. New England rolling. Hopefully, if you saw that when you put some money down and you cashed out, that was one of, I thought, one of the easiest games to pick in week number 12. Titans are lost and the Patriots are rolling. So when we do return here on the Ryan Hickey Show to start hour number two, I thought one team sent a huge, huge message that they are one of the best teams in the NFL with their big win yesterday. And I thought one team had a tremendous chance to also kind of plant their flag and instead suffered the most disappointing Loss of week number 12. I'll tell you who those two teams are. We do return here. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
And welcome back in to our number two of the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Network. We appreciate you starting your Monday back from a holiday weekend with us right here. Never easy to do. Always one of the worst Mondays on the calendar. But we do appreciate you, appreciate you making us a part of your morning, trusting us to hopefully make that morning a little bit brighter, a little bit more entertaining, and hopefully go by a little bit quicker. The 10 o'clock hour, as always, is sponsored by LC Design. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark. Make sure you check out LC Designs NYC for more information. I was lucky enough to be able to spend the weekend with Lauren Clark herself, who, let me tell you firsthand, did make an incredible charcuterie, I guess, table. We'll say it was massive, probably like Two feet by four feet, a lot of meat, a lot of cheeses, a lot of aesthetically pleasing food on the table. She did a tremendous job, so shout out to her. So I wouldn't lead you in the, right, in the wrong direction. She absolutely crushed it, so make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. 20 minutes from now, we will head on to Michigan taking down Ohio State. Oklahoma taking, or Oklahoma State taking down Oklahoma. And one interesting consequence of Lincoln Riley going to USC. We'll discuss that in 20 minutes or so for now. But I do want to hit on Week 12 because I thought Week 12 was a big prove-it week in the NFL. There are numerous big-time matchups. that I think certain teams could take big-time steps and kind of show the rest of the NFL where they are in terms of playoff caliber, in terms of Super Bowl caliber. I think a few other teams had real chances to make those statements and disappointed. That fell short. I think one team had a super impressive win. Two teams, really. And two had mega disappointing losses. All four of these guys, playoff Super Bowl contenders. For me, the most impressive win on Sunday was the Green Bay Packers. Green Bay, I thought yesterday, proved they are a top two team in the NFL by far. The Yuga that win over the Rams. Not only are they one of the most balanced teams in the NFL, they're doing so, by the way, shorthanded. Like, you look how they played against Matthew Stafford yesterday. Right? They got a pick six, which... You know, maybe I shouldn't give them a ton of credit for since every team right now is doing that off of Matthew Stafford. But they did get a pick six. They forced another fumble that, that led to a, uh, to a touchdown. Forced a special teams turnover. Like, they are defensively and on the special teams end very active, putting the ball in harm's way, getting a plenty of chances. And also, by the way, dropped a lot of picks. Matthew Stafford threw a few gimmies out there that if, you know, Green Bay defenders bring down, he probably has three, four interceptions. This Green Bay defense was getting after L.A.'s offense, especially L.A. coming off the bye. I thought they would be a lot sharper, uh, have a lot more in the playbook, feature Odell Beckham more, and they did. He got a touchdown. But I really thought this Rams offense was going to look different this week than it did the past two weeks now with a week off to kind of prepare, settle down, and self-scout. But instead, you're the defense, who has been great all year long with new uh, defensive coordinator Joe Barry. You did a tremendous job yet again putting the clamps down on what is a still explosive but struggling offense in L.A. So the defense has been playing great. Right? Aaron Rodgers, we know, another solid, really good game. Playing on one, I guess one healthy leg we'll call it, with that pinky toe that apparently has given him a lot of issues with the mobility. But 307 yards, two passing touchdowns, was picking apart and kind of dissecting that L.A. defense all game long. There's really no pressure on him, so he could just sit back there. Have himself a day. And he did so. But the reason why, right, it's not just the balance for Green Bay that it, to me has them as a top two team in the NFL. It's also the fact they are doing so 
very shorthanded. Like, they are winning these games without some of their best players. Like, they're missing, on the offensive line, two of their best tackles. And David Bakhtiari has missed all year, still coming back from the ACL injury. And also Ellen Jenkins, who got hurt last week, now out for the rest of the year. So the two best offensive tackles out for the rest of the season, still played well yesterday. Still, again, didn't put Aaron Rodgers under much pressure at all. They're missing their best defensive back in Jair Alexander. They're missing their best pass rusher in Zedari Smith. Kevin King, also a good uh, corner for Green Bay, is also missing. Yet Aaron Jones, even though he was active as their best running back, just 10, te- uh, 10 touches for 23 yards. And you miss Randall Cobb, who had a really good first half for the second half after he hurt, uh, after he hurt his groin. So you look at Green Bay. Two tackles, two top corners, your best edge rusher, your best running back, who was basically ineffective, and one of your best receivers, security blankets for Aaron Rodgers. All of them either ineffective, not playing, got hurt, and still was able to beat the Rams basically by double digits outside of you know a late field goal that did kind of cut it down in garbage time to a one-possession game. That is a dominant victory by Green Bay, an impressive victory by Green Bay where I will be honest, I had some questions about the offense because they were not exactly explosive this season. They've taken a step back from the 2020 offense. And I was just kind of wondering how truly good can Green Bay be when it comes to going up against the elite teams in the NFC when your offense is not nearly as explosive as it was last year, where Aaron Rodgers, who's still having a solid year, is not as efficient and deadly as it was last year. How good can they be? And they are showing. Everyone right now, they are still one of the best teams in the NFL, top two team in the league for sure after yesterday's win. I thought by far the most impressive win of any team in week number 12. The Bengals, though, I thought also had a super, really impressive win. And yesterday, I think they sent a message and reiterated that they are absolutely a playoff team. The blowout of the Pittsburgh Steelers reinforced the fact they are a playoff team. And I'll be honest, some doubt started to creep in, right? They go, you know, they had that big 5-2 and two start. They blow out the Ravens. Everyone's feeling good. And then they go and lose to the Jets on the road to Mike White. Then they get, not only lose, they get blown out at home to the Browns, which the offense has been struggling. Right, we just talked about before, Baker Mayfield and this offense for the Browns. Last six games, five of them, have they have scored 17 or less points. The only game they haven't was against the Bengals. They scored 41. So you had a, a Bengals team. Start off 5-2, and two, lost two brutal games back-to-back, dropped to 5-4, and four, and you're sitting there, eh, okay, maybe they got off to a hot start, but you know, this is kind of what happens with a young team. Maybe they're truly not ready to make that leap. They'll be more competitive this year, but maybe they truly, now when teams kind of know they're coming, now instead of when they're the, hunted, or the hunter, they're the hunted, kind of that changes your perspective. But I thought these last two games really slammed the fact home, and yesterday especially, this is a playoff team. Last week, they won in Vegas against the Raiders, which I thought was a elimination game. Like kind of both teams trending in the, in the same direction. Started off hot, free-falling. The loser of that game was going to miss the playoffs. Well, the Bengals won that game and won so handily. Very impressive game. And now this week, against a division rival who has owned you historically. You go and not only beat the Steelers, you beat them down. You blow them out. This game's over at halftime. This game is over at Half. And not only right, was it impressive that they blew him out, this is also, again, against a Steelers team that was healthier. Right? Last week against the Chargers, they're missing TJ Watt. They're missing Mika Fitzpatrick. Obviously, Big Ben was in COVID protocol all week long. We were unsure if he was going to play or not. 
And despite the fact, or I should say, despite that fact that they all returned, all had a week of practice under them and kind of felt better, they still hung 41 points. And they did so beating the Steelers kind of at their own game. They played a very physical football game and punched the Steelers in the mouth, bullied them on the field, and were the better team. You had Joe Mixon rushed for a career-high 165 yards, two touchdowns on the ground. And to me, that says a lot. When you can push around your opponent, when you can dominate the line of scrimmage and basically impose your will on a team that has been doing so to you for years, that truly shows you the makeup of this team and how and why they are a true playoff contender. They have taken a big step in growth in year number two, and now I'd be shocked and disappointed if the Bengals aren't in the playoffs. They are a legitimate contender here in the AFC, and I think a team that cemented their playoff status yesterday. So a very impressive win by the Bengals. I thought the Packers had the most impressive win of any team in Week 12. So we talked about the positives from yesterday. We got to hit them the negatives. I thought the Colts, the Indianapolis Colts, had the most disappointing loss of any team on Sunday. Like they missed a true shot here to bolster your playoff chances and even get back into the division race. I still think the, the Titans are going to win the AFC South, but the way they have been playing, especially on offense, no win is guaranteed for them going down the stretch. So even though the Titans swept the Colts, this was still a legit shot here to not only get back in the division race, but send a message to the rest of the NFL. Back-to-back wins over the Bills and the Buccaneers would show you. Here come the Colts. And you know what? They should have won this game. They absolutely should have won this game, and they let it slip out of their hands. They played the sloppiest game of the year, I thought, yesterday, and it came at the worst time. Because you're never going to win a game. But especially, you're never going to win a game against Tom Brady when you turn the ball over five times. When you have some key, costly penalties in some big situations where you got to play clean football, you don't do so. Like, you are never going to let, or Tom Brady should say, is never going to let an opportunity. Like, getting the ball five times on turnovers. He's never going to say, hey, you know, I'm going to not convert on that. That's a guy who has lived and done this for years and years and years, making teams pay for their own mistakes. So you look at the, the five turnovers, right? Four of them truly came during the game because the last pick Carson went through was a Hail Mary at the last play of the game. So you look at the four true turnovers the Colts had in this game. The Bucs not only scored on every single turnover, they scored touchdowns on most of them. They scored 24 points off of the Colts' four turnovers. So you look at the final score, 38-31. You know, only two touchdowns, really, were scored by the offense not coming off of Colts' turnovers. That's a killer. You cannot allow that to happen. You cannot defeat the defending champs or any playoff team when you give them four turnovers the way the Colts did. And they came at brutal times. Like, we, we talked about the Colts giving this game away. There's a reason for that. They're up 24-14 and a half. They're about to go up 17. They are driving on the Buccaneers to start the, the second half. And instead, Carson Wentz gets strip-sacked. Buccaneers cover. They eventually drive down for a touchdown. That's a 14-point swing. The Colts go up 17. Now the lead is just three. That is massive right there. And instead, as we know, eventually you give Tom Brady, you know, too many cookies, he converts. That's what the Buccaneers did. That is a game where, you know what, true champions win. The Buccaneers showed you, even though they didn't have their best game offensively, defensively, for most of the game, they couldn't slow down the Colts' offense. They still found a way to win. The Colts shot themselves in the foot again. 
this just goes to show you, I think, for the Colts, how truly hard it is and how you really can't beat yourself. But also how important fundamentals are. One was a muff punt. Another one where a receiver, you know, just tucked the ball away. Carson went through one pick I thought was kind of bad. You know, the last one, what are you going to do? But threw another one to Michael Pittman and just got to throw a better ball. Like, these small things the Colts have to improve are fixable, but it's all about fundamentals. When you were in an early hole the Colts were in the season, they started off one and four. You can't afford to let these opportunities slip by, and now this is becoming a trend for the Colts all season long. They blew a 22-3 lead to the Ravens on Sunday Night Football. They have had a double-digit lead in every single game since week four. Think about that. Every single lead they've had, or every single week, I should say, they've had a double-digit lead since week four. They lost to the Ravens. They lost to the Titans. You can't, and now they lost to the Buccaneers. You can't lose games of double digits on good teams, two of those coming at home. You got to find ways to put the game away. And really, outside of the Bills game last week, the Colts have failed to do so. Very disappointing. This was a game that, I'll be honest, I'm a Colts fan. Going in, I didn't think they are going to win. But you see how the first half played out. They're moving the ball, having success. The defense was fooling Tom Brady a little bit. Carson Wentz was having success. Three touchdown passes in the first half. You cannot lose that game, and they did. Big disappointment. Speaking of which, similar scale, I think the Colts' loss is worse. The Eagles lost a game which true playoff contenders to me don't lose. This was an Eagles game against the Giants where I get both teams are not very good. Both are under 500. But for the Eagles, right, and we talked about in the NFC, but kind of before the 49ers, in an NFC that is wide open, in an NFC that literally anyone can have at the bottom of the last two playoff spots for how bad it's been, this was a game where the Eagles should have won, needed to win, and blew it. And really, the, the final kind of play of the game, I think, tells the story of this game. Fourth down. Eagles are in Giants territory. Jalen Hurts throws the ball all the way down to the one-yard line. Jalen Rager's open. Not only is he open, he should make the ball in right in the hands. He should have made the catch. It wasn't even contested. Ball slips through his hands at the one-yard line, falls incomplete. The Eagles lose this game. That would have been a, a potential go-ahead touchdown. Eagles are only down 13-7. to You catch that, either fall down at the one or fall in the end zone. The Eagles are winning that game. And now also the Eagles lose a win or a game they desperately, obviously desperately needed. And I do think the playoff team wins that game. But being unable to outscore the Giants is unacceptable. I got the Giants defense played really well yesterday. You still need to find a way to beat an anemic Giants offense and score just 13 points. The Eagles offense has been rolling. Jalen Hurts has gotten to a groove. I think yesterday, games like yesterday do kind of reinforce the questions about Jalen Hurts and his viability as a true NFL starter. Now, he has shown some flashes in the last month. Now that the run game, now that Nick Sirianni rediscovered that you are indeed allowed to run the ball with your running backs more than once a half, the run game has really opened up, made the passing game easier for Jalen Hurts. And yesterday, he really reverted back to a quarterback that really kind of gets your nerves if you're an Eagles fan in terms of truly being the guy. 14-31, just 129 yards, Three interceptions. And that's with, by the way, him having success on the ground. Right? It wasn't like he was bottled up and he had to throw the ball 50 times a game like we saw early in the year. He had 77 yards on the ground. He was effective in moving the ball uh, and running with his legs and keeping that Giants defense slicing and dicing him. 
but he really could not move the ball through the air. And that's what the Eagles need to have success. They need Jalen Hurts to be, I don't say, you know, an elite passer, but just an efficient passer more than anything else. Forget about yards. They need to be efficient. Take the completions when they're there. Keep the chains moving. Keep the offense ahead of the sticks. And he couldn't do that. So you look, I really thought, you know, this Eagles team I don't think is very good. I was thinking the Eagles were a playoff team. You look at their schedule, right, going into yesterday. Their schedule was this. You play the Giants twice, the Washington football team twice, the Jets and the Cowboys. That is the final seven games for the Eagles. Well, one of those, I thought, gimme games against the Giants, you lose. Should be the Jets. You should get revenge on the Giants. But games like this make you remember the Eagles, yeah, when you're dealing with these teams on the bottom of the NFC, no one can truly be trusted because right now it's one of those, you know, one of those bottom of the years or leagues, one of those one of those seasons where the bottom of the league really can't be trusted. So for me, I think a playoff team, if the Eagles are truly a playoff team, you win that game yesterday. You cannot lose the game the way they did, not give it away the way they did. Big disappointment from Philly. So I'm curious your thoughts here. I think for me, the most impressive winning yesterday is the Packers. They proved they are a top two team in the NFL. I thought the most disappointing loss was the Colts. They should have controlled that game. They should have easily been the Buccaneers. Things were rolling offensively and defensively, and their turnovers allowed the Buccaneers back in the game. Leonard Fred, as we know, four total touchdowns. He was a beast. That should have never happened. Colts should have never given the Bucs and Tom Brady an opportunity to get back in the game they did. They lost the game instead of kind of the Bucs winning it. That, to me, is the most disappointing loss of any team in the NFL yesterday. So I'm curious your thoughts. Who had the most impressive win? Who had the most disappointing loss from week number 12? We'll get your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We will collect your thoughts there. And when we do return here, we got to talk about the actual games that happened on Saturday in college football. The Michigan. Pull off the biggest upset in college football this season. We'll discuss that in another, uh, a few uh, college football notes from this weekend. We'll do so when the Reineke returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio. Right what a chaotic weekend it was in college football just on the field. Forget what we happened you know, with Lincoln Riley and that coaching search. We, we hit on that. We'll, we'll circle back to that in 15 minutes or so for now. But let's talk about what happened on the field. And no bigger game, no bigger win came than on Saturday in Ann Arbor, Michigan with the Wolverines taking down Ohio State for the first time since 2011. Buckeyes have dominated this rivalry 15 last 16. For me, I will say this. I think this is the biggest upset of the college football season, Michigan beating Ohio State. I get Michigan's number five in the rankings. Ohio State was two. I get Michigan was at home, 10-1 and one in the season, right? It almost sounds insane to call that a big-time upset, bigger than Texas A&M upsetting Alabama a month ago, bigger shock than Stanford taking down Oregon two months ago. But I do think Michigan beating Ohio State was the most improbable victory of the season. 
And I'll tell you this. I really thought it was going to be business as usual with Ohio State taking care of the job and beating Michigan yet again. I didn't see a difference in this Michigan team this year, led by Jim Harbaugh, compared to what we saw in past years where it was hyped up that Michigan was going to beat Ohio State. Whether it was 2016, when they had that great year, at one point they're 10-0, number two in the rankings. Whether it was 2018, the revenge tour, right, where they were beating everyone that beat them the year before, and the only team standing in their way was Ohio State, where they actually were favored in the horseshoe, and then watch Ohio State hang 63 in them. I really do think, because you look at recruiting with Ohio State and the great offensive weapons they have, whether it's Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith and Jigba, whether it's Trayvon Henderson at running back, I did not think defensively from Michigan or offensively they were going to be able to keep up with the Buckeyes offense and really make this a game. I was so confident that Ohio State would kind of dominate the way they had before, where in the Jim Harbaugh era, Ohio State has won by an average of 19 points per game. That this is going to kind of follow suit. So I'll give Jim Harbaugh, Michigan, Mike McDonald, the defense coordinator, a ton of credit. They dictated this game on Saturday in a similar, to, uh, in a similar way to what Oregon did to Ohio State earlier in the year. And we, you know, you watch this game on Saturday. Ohio State was flat out beaten. Michigan dominated the line of scrimmage, dominated the pace of the game, dominated really every single aspect. They're the more physical team. They bullied Ohio State, and they looked truly like they were sick and tired of kind of being the little brother, if you will, and getting beat every single year. They, to their credit, ran the ball right down Ohio State's throat, didn't let up, didn't flinch under pressure. Even when Ohio State kind of scored a few times to make it close, they never panicked. And I'll give Jim, credit, uh, Jim Harbaugh a lot of credit for that. I don't think he had it in him. When I was filling in for CBS, on CBS Sports Radio last week, I was sitting here telling you, Michigan should fire Jim Harbaugh if they lose on Saturday. Because the gap has only widened with him as head coach compared to when he took over, you know, when it was Rich Rod or Brady Hoke or even Lloyd Carter into his, uh, his tenure. This has been a rivalry that's been one-sided. Well, you couldn't even call it a rivalry the last 15 years. To Michigan's credit, though, they made all the right plays and again, they flipped the script from past years of Michigan getting their hopes up and getting disappointed by a Ohio State blowout. They got the job done. Because they ran for 297 yards. Again, they dominated this game on the ground. They controlled the pace. And Ohio State was playing catch-up from the very beginning. Started right in the opening drive. Marched right down the field, scored a touchdown. Hassan Haskins was tremendous. 169 rushing yards for him. Five touchdowns. Five touchdowns. Now, I think, honestly, even more impressive than his performance, I think, was Aiden Hutchinson. Because, again, that was another area where Michigan's defense has been really good in years past. Right, 2018, they were one of the best defenses in all the country. Kept hearing about how they're going to get after Dwayne Haskins, how the secondary is elite. You know, the Ohio State receivers won't be able to, you know, get much separation and get going here. And we have seen, again, Ohio State drop a number on them on the offensive end. So I really did think, you know what, this is going to be another year. I get Aiden Hutchinson's had a tremendous season. I get, you know, what is it, David Ojabu, whether it's the secondary. This Michigan defense under new uh, defensive coordinator Mike McDonald has changed, but I really thought it was going to be the same old story because we've heard this before and again and again and again. We've seen the results go Ohio State's way. But using the backfield, Aiden Hutchinson was all game long. Three sacks on C.J. Stroud, and their physicality on the offensive line and the defensive line was the difference. Stroud never really looked comfortable. He was under pressure a ton all game long. 
the Ohio State front could not stop Michigan's run game. This to me, because I just thought the skill level was so drastic, the speed was so drastic that Michigan would not be able to keep up with Ohio State, and they did so. What a big-time win for Jim Harbaugh, especially in a pressurized moment with the Big Ten title game on the line, with a, a direct pass to the college football playoff on the line. They had an insane, and to me, improbable win. Rankings-wise, spread-wise, it is going to go down nowhere near as the biggest upset of college football. But I was so certain that Ohio State was going to win. And for me, this is the most improbable victory of the season in any, you know, by any team. A lot of credit goes to Michigan and Jim Harbaugh. He said it's the beginning. He, you know, he thinks this is the beginning for Michigan kind of turning it around. This is a big-time win to get Michigan back on a winning track, back on a national title-chasing track for the first time in a really long time. Good for Michigan. A hell of a win. I think they did not think, to be honest, they were anywhere close to getting it. They surprised me big time. A lot of kudos goes to them. Here's a statement I did not think we would be making this year, but there's no other way to say it. Alabama's not an elite team this year. They're absolutely not. And there's no way, no chance, Alabama is beating Georgia in the SEC title game on Saturday. They are not going to make the playoff. This offense is just not consistent enough. We saw that again happen on Saturday. And guess what? When you have an inconsistent offense going against this elite, consistently great Georgia defense, you don't stand a chance. Look at Saturday. Look at the latest example of Alabama struggles in offense. Let's see what we saw on Saturday. Auburn's defensive line dominated that O-line. They pushed him around. They were the more physical group for most of the game. Seven sacks of Bryce Young, 11 tackles for loss, Eight quarterback hurries. They were all over uh, Bryce Young, all over in the backfield of this Alabama offense. The O-line for Bama could not control the D-line of Auburn. That almost, almost proved to be the difference of the game, even with Auburn playing with the backup quarterback. That's how dominant that front four was for Auburn. That's how dominant that defense was. Because you look, Alabama's a really good team at running the ball. They had 37 carries for just 71 yards, 1.9 yards per carry. The offense was never able to establish a run. Bryce Young had a lot on his plate throwing the ball. Now, to his credit, to his credit, he did drive them 99 yards down the field for the game-tying touchdown. They did score once in overtime. They did eventually win on a, on a game-winning two-point conversion. So I'm not trying to sit here and say it was all bad for Alabama. But you watch that performance against an Auburn team that's kind of been, uh, okay. I don't see how you feel good about Alabama going up against Georgia because this is not just a, a one-time thing, right? This was just one game where, okay, fine, it's the rivalry. Maybe Alabama's already overlooking you know, Auburn and getting ready for, the, for Georgia. You could say, okay, fine. One game, it's college football. It happens, right? They're 18 to 22-year-old kids. But this Alabama inconsistency has happened all season long. It's not just the Auburn game, right? The, for, for, against Florida, they have 21, I think it's 21 nothing. Right away, 21-3 in the first quarter. Well, the rest of the game, they fell asleep. They led Florida back into the game and scored just 10 points the rest of the way. They needed a third, uh, a two-point conversion stop just to get out of the swamp alive. For three quarters against Tennessee, that was a back-and-forth close game. For the entirety of the LSU game, that offense was bogged down. They scored just 20 points. They won 20-14 to against LSU. Arkansas, the offense is rolling. The defense couldn't get a stop. They won by a touchdown. All season long, 
The offense has struggled at times. The defense has struggled at times. They've been a very inconsistent unit where they haven't really put together a full game offensively and defensively in a really long time. I'm trying to think, like, maybe the first game against Miami where the defense is playing great and so is the offense. Like, I'm trying to think off the top of my head here. Ole Miss, Ole Miss is part of the game. Okay, so since the Ole Miss game was at early October, that was the last time Alabama played a full offensive performance, defensive performance against, you know, a Power 5 team. We're not talking about, you know, Charleston Southern here or the Citadel. So I can't really sit here and tell you Alabama, you know, I have faith Alabama's going to go in and beat Georgia, even make this a game. And it's not just what we saw on the field. I think Nick Saban also kind of knows what we're, we're seeing here as well. If you saw, if you remember last week, Nick Saban had that viral rant, um, or that had that rant, I should say, go viral, when he was speaking at his own radio show leading into the Iron Bowl. He was asked a question about why Alabama, you know, basically wasn't blowing their opponents out more than, you know, fans are used to seeing, right? Every game is supposed to be a blow for Alabama. We've seen that time and time again. And Nick Saban went on, a, you know, a three-minute rant about entitlement from the fans and how they should be happy that, you know, the kids are playing hard and they're showing up and they're winning games and they have all this pressure on their plates and all this other stuff. When have we ever kind of heard Nick Saban before talk about, you know, just being happy for a win, just, you know, being thankful the kids are out there trying hard and they're giving it their all? But that to me kind of shows you Nick Saban knows this team is not one of the best and one of the sharpest he's had in a while. That they should just be happy to win any game because, you know, maybe they should have lost a game or two otherwise on the schedule that other teams couldn't, you know, put the final nail in the coffin in and win. I think he knows, and trying to defend the team's up and down play this year, that he knows this is not a national title contender. This is not an elite team that he has in years past. This is a team that has really struggled, has some, you know, big-time holes. They've been unable to fill, and I think Georgia's really going to take it to them next week. I don't foresee this being a close game. I think Georgia will roll, because Alabama, for the first time in a while, they are not an elite team. Who is an elite team? Who, to me, is going to the college football playoff is Oklahoma State. I know right now we'll get the rankings tomorrow evening. They were number seven coming to this game. Doesn't matter where they are. I think as long as they win on Saturday, as long as they beat Bale in the Big 12 title game, I don't care what happens in front of them. I think uh, you, uh, Oklahoma State is going to the college football playoff. To me, it doesn't matter. If the unthinkable happens with Alabama beating Georgia and you get two SEC teams in, I don't even care, to be honest, if Cincinnati beats Houston. I do think the committee would view a 12-1 Oklahoma State team with three wins over top 10 programs higher than they view an undefeated Cincinnati team. So I think one way or another, no matter what happens, if Alabama wins and you get two, uh, two SEC teams in, if Cincinnati wins and they're undefeated, I don't see how Oklahoma State is getting left out at 12-1 as the Big 12 champ. Because you look now, right? The, last, the latest game, we'll, we'll look at as an example. Number 10, Oklahoma, they beat. Able to overcome adversity, right, where you had Oklahoma go on a 6-0 run thanks to interceptions, thanks to a safety, some big-time Cowboy mistakes. This offense was still able and good enough to make some plays, and they haven't really been the most explosive offense this season compared to times past. The defense, through the final you know, quarter and a half of this game, was locked down on Caleb Williams, made the plays when they had to to seal the deal. And now you look, it's not just Oklahoma that they've beaten. They've beaten Baylor once already, who now currently is number eight, have a chance to beat them again. So you beat number 18 Baylor twice. You beat number 10 Oklahoma now once. 
I don't see how they get left out. Wait, the biggest thing, I guess, I don't say issue, but nationally, from a national perspective, look at Oklahoma State. They're not a sexy team. They're really not a flashy team. We usually are, are associate offensive explosion with Oklahoma State and bad defense. Now they had Brandon Whedon. They've had a lot of other fun quarterbacks that have lit up, you know, put a ton of Mason Rudolph. NFL career hasn't panned out, but he was a great passer at Oklahoma State. Put up a lot of big numbers, a lot of big, um, you know, made a lot of, you know, set a lot of records. This has never been a team that we associate with defense, with conservative offense, with running the ball. And that's what Mike Gunny, to his credit, has turned this team into this year. He saw the strength of the team being the defense. He has changed the offense into a way that is now more conservative to where they're not turning the ball over. They're making enough plays. They aren't turning the ball over. They aren't being the reason why they lose games. And now they are all they're doing is taking care of business. Right? In a season that's had a lot of upsets, a lot of turmoil, Oklahoma State has been consistent week in and week out. They are really playing great and getting the job done. That's to me what a playoff team does. A playoff team is one that just wins games, gets it going consistent every single week, and that to me is why Oklahoma State is a playoff team no matter what happens in front of this week. They to be there as long as they win. I think they're guaranteed it. Congrats to you, Cowboys. What a game for sure. And finally here, I do want to, sorry, as I'm just looking at the live stream, I, I do see, I think the sun here is playing a few tricks on us here. Let's see if we can move it that way and make it a, a little bit better. But finally, I do want to hit on one aspect of Lincoln Riley going to USC that I don't think we've really seen or really heard about too often, and that's this. Who is leaving Oklahoma? to go follow Lincoln Riley to USC. I think there's going to be a, a few players that absolutely should. If you're Caleb Williams, who had a tremendous freshman year for the most part, right? Now with the new transfer rules, you can transfer one time without sitting out. Absolutely. Caleb Williams should want to go to USC and follow Lincoln Riley in his footsteps. Now, I think he will. I think he should. Because if you're Caleb Williams, right? You are one of the top recruits in the country. You chose to go to Oklahoma. You chose to play for Lincoln Riley. Well, he has so far got you to a step where... You are one of the best freshman quarterbacks. You already kind of were put on the national stage already with the way you played in uh, the Red River rivalry and so on. You are going to be the quarterback of this team. Wouldn't you rather follow Lincoln Riley in his track record where he developed Jalen Hurts, he developed Baker Mayfield, he turned to Kyler Murray, who's supposed to just play football for one year, then go to baseball, turn him into the number one overall pick in the NFL, Heisman Trophy winner. Wouldn't you want to follow that guy to USC because he ensures you have the best shot at success going forward? I would. And now with the new rules, I don't see why you'd rather risk that if you're Caleb Williams with the next head coach brought in, which we don't know who it's going to be. Right? Oklahoma is still a big-time sexy job. They will only command big names doing so. But either way, you can't trust whoever is brought in is going to develop you the way Lincoln Riley would. And if you're Lincoln Riley... You absolutely should want Caleb Williams to go your way. There's a ton of talent in the Southern California area quarterback-wise. I get it. Recruiting is going to be very easy. But now when you look, right, we're just about a month away, or less than that, what am I talking about? A few, few weeks away from the early national signing period, which now a lot of your classes, for the most part, do sign in December. It's going to be almost impossible for you to recruit and get some big-time talents with you to USC for next year. So why not take a quarterback you handpicked, you got out of Maryland, you brought him to Oklahoma, why not bring him to USC? Make that rebuild even quicker. Like we said, I think it's going to take some time for Lincoln Riley to kind of get his foot uh, settled 
and kind of turn this roster around because there's a lot of holes that USC still has to um, shore up in recruiting. But one of the ways to make it easier, one of the ways to kind of turn you know the program around quicker is by utilizing the transfer portal and getting guys like Caleb Williams on campus. So now I do think that whether it's you know a team that has a, a great wide receiver group but really not much else outside of it, I think the transfer portal is going to be something now to watch here for Lincoln Riley the next few weeks. And I think if you're Caleb Williams, going to Oklahoma makes the uh, going to USC makes the most sense for you as long as Lincoln Riley wants you there, which I don't see why he wouldn't. He should make the move and follow his coach from Oklahoma to USC. We're going to see this now going forward with a lot of big-time coaches, but I do think it's amplified even more when you have such a, a coach with the stature and the success that Lincoln Riley has going from one big program to another. But usually, we don't see moves of this happen often. But I do think now, with a, such a, a, a big-time name leaving, that I do think it's going to now all of a sudden bring a good amount of players on the roster that want to continue developing under Lincoln Riley, leave it Oklahoma, go into USC. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Should Caleb Williams, in your mind, go to USC? Free one-time transfer, doesn't sit out, he can play next year, and be automatically eligible. Should he leave? Should Oklahoma players follow Lincoln Riley to USC? And for Michigan, is that the biggest upset of the year? Was them taking down Ohio State the biggest upset in college football this season? And it's Alabama still an elite team. We'll get your thoughts, whether it's Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. We'll get your thoughts when we do return here. Lincoln Riley going to USC. How big of an impact is it? How much does that shake up the college football world? We'll discuss how big of a hire it was, not just for USC, but for the conference. When the Ryan Hickey Show does return right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, wrapping up on a Monday morning. But I do want to kind of circle back to the biggest news of the day. And that is Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma, going from one blue blood to another, leaving Oklahoma, and now becoming the next head coach of USC. For me, this is the biggest head coaching hire in college football since Alabama hired Nick Saban back in 2007. Because Lincoln Riley getting hired by USC is not just having an impact on USC. This is not just about the Trojans now trying to get back for the first time since the Pete Carroll era. This is also a huge boost for the Pac-12. It makes an entire conference relevant again. That's why this move is so impactful. Think about that. No other coaching move that was made since Nick Saban left the Dolphins to go to Alabama. Can you say one coaching hire made an entire conference better and more relevant? That is what Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma is doing for USC and the Pac-12 program. Because you look at what our Pac-12 conference. Because you look how a conference, even though it's a Power 5 conference, gets irrelevant. Because now in the college football playoff era, right, we care about the four teams and who's around the four teams. Well, for the Pac-12, they made the playoff twice. First year with Oregon, 2016 with Washington. So not only have they not made the playoff most years, not a lot of teams have even been in the discussion. So now it's kind of like the, the Pac-12, everyone loses one game out west. It's like, all right, well, they're done. 
Oregon loses, ah, they're out of there. Utah, never a shot. You know, Washington, see you later. We never truly have a college football team from the Pac-12 in the college football playoff uh, race this late in the year. I know Oregon just was until two weeks ago, but for the most part, right, there's been no true dominant team in the Pac-12 the way there is with Alabama and the SEC, Ohio State in the Big 12, uh, the Big 10, Oklahoma in the Big 12, and up until this year, Clemson in the ACC. Now Lincoln Riley going to USC, I think, will bring them back to their dominant years. Make this program a repeated, you know, a a, uh, seasonal or a yearly college football playoff contender. The the Pac-12, let's call for it. I kind of hate this or this uh, comparison, but I I can't fight it. It's true. The Pac-12 is better when USC is better. USC is such a big-time brand, such an iconic brand filled with winning and success that when they are back on their winning ways, when they are... You know, winning Pac-12 titles and they're going 12 and one or 13 and 0 every single year, that raises the tide of the other teams in the Pac-12. Now we look at Utah, Oregon, Washington with more respect because of USC's dominance. We haven't had that since USC's dynasty kind of fell off in the early mid 2000s. Now I think Lincoln Riley not only going to USC, choosing the Pac-12 over the SEC. It's a massive deal. When have we ever had that, right? We have never seen a coach willingly choose to go to the Pac-12 over the SEC, shunning the best conference in college football for, let's say, the worst Power 5 conference. That's why this move is so impactful. Getting USC back, keeping those recruits in Southern California, keeping talented players in the conference, it's how the Pac-12 gets back to relevancy. How USC gets back to being a premier power in college football. And that's what I think Lincoln Riley will do in Southern California. That's why I think this move is one of the most impactful and the biggest head coaching hire in college football since 15 years ago when Nick Saban was hired by Alabama. This is a move not just about USC. This is a move about the Pac-12. This is also a move by Oklahoma and the SEC. Lincoln Riley could have stayed at Oklahoma and coached there in the SEC. He could have went to, excuse me, LSU, coached in the SEC. He chose the Pac-12. He saw an opening to where he could not only bring an iconic national brand back to relevancy, he also can win without many, you know, roadblocks in his way compared to the U.S. compared to USC. When you have Georgia standing in your way, when you have Alabama standing in your way, LSU is always a title contending team for most years, and I think whoever. Their head coaches will bring them back to that, you know, consistent level. You have Ole Miss on the rise, especially if Lane Kippen stays. You have even Arkansas, right, a team on the bottom. But Sam Pittman has brought this team to just being super competitive where they're in the top 25. So now even one of the bottom feeders in the SEC is super competitive, and now you kind of got to watch yourself every single game. There's really no margin for error in the SEC. To where the Pac-12, that is there for the taking. That is there to grab, and Lincoln Riley, I think, will grab it. So this is a major, major move in college football. For me, the biggest head coaching hire in 15 years. Congrats to you, USC. This is, I think, the biggest home run you could have hit. By far the best coach you could have got. And they are the ultimate winners, no matter who USC hires, no matter who Oklahoma hires. This is the 
home run hire of this coaching cycle, the biggest home run in 15 years since Nick Saban went to Alabama. Incredible. Congrats, USC fans. I'm sure you are going nuts. Great morning to you waking up, right? We're all kind of sitting here. Monday after Thanksgiving, Monday after a holiday weekend is always tough, right? You're always tired. You always kind of get the Sunday scares going back to work. If you're a USC fan, you, I'm sure, didn't even sleep all night. You are feeling better than maybe you ever have the last 15 years. So congrats to you. Enjoy. That is a big-time hire that I think a lot of success will come your way. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. It's great to be back with you again. It, it stunk, and I apologize for missing last week. But it is good now to be back on a regular Monday-Thursday schedule. So we, we will be back on Thursday. Get you ready for week number 13 in the NFL. Get you ready for conference championship week in college football as we have the final weekend of games to decide who will make the college football playoff. So enjoy the rest of your week. Stay safe. As always, stay sane. And we'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio.